0: So we've reached the end of our series. We've been looking at the promises of God, and if you can think all the way back to week one, back to Genesis chapter three, you will recall that these promises began with a promise of the strangest kind. To Satan, God promised to crush his head. It's a promise to hold him ultimately responsible for all of the sins of the world. But to Eve. It's a promise of grace. It's a promise to Eve that says, there's a way out. This is not the end. I am going to do something. God promises to Eve, an offspring, promises to involve her in this great divine rescue, a descendant from her where she failed who will win. But God also says this victory of the offspring will cost him his life and life. For Eve, though it's a promise of grace, there is a consequence as well, and we've seen that unfold. Having eaten from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Eve is expelled from the garden for her own good. She has this propensity to snack, and there is another tree in the garden, the tree of life, and the very worst thing that Eve could have done, having eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil would have been to have eaten from this tree of life and to spend eternity in this fallen world as a sinner. And so she is cast away from that tree until the victory is won. There's a promise here of judgment, a promise here of grace, a promise here of victory, a promise here of consequence. And wrapped into them all is the promise of a new world. A day when at last it will be okay to eat from that tree. In fact, not just okay, but we are welcome to eat from it. And we've been watching this promise, this complicated promise, unfold week by week by week. You want the kind of, you know, study notes to this sermon series? Well, all of the promises find their yes in Jesus, as we've just been singing. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the promise of God. There is nonetheless a ton of background to this sermon, and you won't really understand it if you've not heard all of the sermons in this series. In a sense, Jesus is the answer to all of the sermons. In a sense, all of the sermons are the background for today, and all of Scripture is the background for today. But before we turn to the very last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, let's turn back to Revelation 20, please, verse 10. Chapters 20, 21, they really tie in a lot of the themes that we've seen in Scripture, and we'll run through them as quickly as we can. So, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Note that this is written in the past tense God sees the future as though it were already past and they will be there's that promised language will be tormented day and night forever and ever future tense god knows the future and he knows that this situation will never end this is the eternal destiny of the snake as promised in that garden long ago this is where he belongs it is where he is going what about us where are we going Well, as we've seen over and over again in this series, and especially in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, God makes two promises to us, two contingent promises, if you like, I will do this or I will do that, depending on how you respond to him. And verse 15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire as well. Now, for many years, the chief concern of theologians and pastors alike was how do we get into this book of life and how do we avoid that lake of fire? That was the question, but I've noticed a trend in Christian circles, especially over the last 20 years or so, to dilute this teaching in many ways, to try and make it seem more palatable and less severe. Theologically speaking, hell is not cool at the moment. It's not really on trend. Maybe some people say nobody goes there and maybe everyone is saved in the end. Or maybe a variation on this, just the worst people go to hell. Hitler, Stalin and the Manchester United football team, perhaps. Now, There is a Man United fan coming to the 11 o'clock service, and this joke is especially for him, but we can all be in on it, can't we? They're called the Red Devils. They have a symbol on their shirt of Satan with horns and a pitchfork. I'm uh, I'm just saying, all right? My team, Bird, with a sort of olive branch in its beak. Who are the good guys? Liverpool, of course. Another theory. Let's get back to the text. Uh, Maybe, it's actually seaweed, but it wasn't as funny. Another theory, uh, maybe many go to hell, but very few remain there. You know, once you see how bad it is, you repent very quickly, or, or maybe you go there and hell just burns off the bad bits, like a sort of refining fire, and eventually a clean version of you escapes, or I don't know, maybe your friends back here can pray you out if they remember. Another theory, well, maybe it doesn't last. Maybe eventually Hell disappears and all of the inhabitants of hell with it. It makes sense, right? Leave a chicken in an oven for a day and it gets burnt. Leave it for a week, it turns to ash. Leave it for a month and the chicken, the oven, and the entire house will disappear. Maybe hell works like that. Universalism, purgatory, annihilationism, they all have proper names, which means they're proper ideas, but none of these ideas is to be found in the Word of God. And every single one of them contradicts the Word of God. Just do some logical thinking for a moment also. Come on in. It's not that bad, really. does not sound like the promise of God to me. It sounds like the promise of someone who wants you to go there. Who says that? And who has been saying that to you from the start? God's promise is never to dilute the horror of hell. It is to redeem and to rescue us from it, to deliver us from this hell until it is too late and to do so at incalculable cost to himself. The God of the universe who creates and sustains all things has known from the start how bad that was and chose the cross to rescue us from hell. Are you telling me that you've found something that he's overlooked and that there was another way and that the cross was a waste of time? His promises are way better than ours. He does not want us there. That's why he died on the cross. Chapter 21, jumping ahead, so much ground to cover here. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I mean, how much better is that than a sort of redeemed chicken? He will. Here's the promised language. Count the wills. You know, I will is the, the language of a promise, and there's so much of it here. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself, that is emphatic. Not just God, but God himself himself will be with them as their God. And the promised language comes thick and comes fast. Now he will thus for wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the vision of God's preferred future for you. Many of us know the pain of being bereaved, Many of us have read this passage of Scripture at a funeral. Many of us know the pain of preparing to be bereaved and how in some senses that's worse than the bereavement itself, that anticipation of loss and pain. Many of us know what it's like to suffer in this congregation, what it's like to have a physical ailment of some kind, what it's like to be injured, what it is like to receive verbal abuse and what it is like uh, over a life to carry unseen wounds of things that were done to us and, and said to us many, many years ago. Many of us carry these things around, walk and live with pain. Very, very few of us are comfortable talking about mental health. Somehow we treat that as different from the physical, but there is one God over it all. Statistically, most Americans will suffer from mental ill health. I want us to be a church that that talks about this and brings this into the light and proclaims the blood of Christ over this. Even fewer of us want to find a less fashionable subject than mental health. How about demonic attack? Very, very few of us are willing to talk about the temptations we face, the condemnation we live under when we give into those temptations, and the cycles of addiction that we break and maybe return to, and the shame that goes with that. And yet, most of us, are going to say every single one of us will face some form of spiritual attack at some point in our lives, and it seems that the more we step up, And work for Jesus Christ, the stronger it becomes. And God promises to all of us, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, all of that pain, there will be a time when he wipes it away and wipes away the tears that come from it. It will all pass away. This is God's vision of the future for you. I will. What a promise. Wipe away your tears. Not forget about it, not don't talk about it, let's pretend it's not real. (laughs) It is real, and I will wipe it away, he says. Now we have this photograph at home, I love it, and uh, taken years ago, one of the children had fallen over and was filthy from whatever they'd fallen out of or into and was very badly scratched, and they came in crying, and Cat ran a bath for them so that she could clean them up, but they would not get in, because we all know what it feels like, don't we, to be grazed and cut and to be put into water. And so knowing that they needed to get clean and avoid infection, what she did, having run the bath, was she got into it with them. And there's this photograph of cat, fully clothed, sitting in the bath, holding a child, wiping away their tears, cleaning up their wounds and being with them. And it's such a great picture. Just to Add to the poignancy of the image. The children had been to a party, and, and they had face painting on it. It's just such an incredible image. And uh, it is, for me, not just a great picture of, of, of my wife and, and, and the childhood of my kids. It is, of course, a picture of God with us, like a mum, in the pain. You know, at cost to themselves, in the mess, cleaning us up. That's my God. He will wipe away these tears at cost to himself, and we're going to get to that cost in a moment. Next, verse 5. I can't even remember what chapter we're in, but it's one of them, one of the last ones. Verse 5, the tense of the verbs changes. A scholar will shout out what chapter we're in. I've lost myself. And uh, he who was seated on the throne said, 21. Thanks, Ben. He who was seated on the throne said, behold check out the tense of this verb, by the way, I am making all things new. He's making a promise in the process of fulfilling the promise. That's how God works, because he's over all time. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done, perfect tense now, achieved or accomplished, generated actually is what the word means. And then he explains how and why I am, promise language, covenant name of God, The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, I'm before all things and after all things. I am before the beginning, I'm after the end, and God, therefore, sees all things at once. When God says, I will to you, uniquely, he means I will because he knows the promise is going to be fulfilled before he even makes it to you. And that which he will do and is doing, indeed, he already has done. Verse 7, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, Revelation does this, we have seen, uses these images and uses these complicated and strange pictures to tell us very simple things. And if you've been with me in the bends in this series, you will know that these images all have a meaning. We've heard almost all of them before. They just build up upon each other. There's no compunction about mixing metaphors and allegories and images here, and so there are many. Going from a book of life to a spring of life now, like that psalm we just read. How do you gain access to the spring? It's the same question as how do you get written into the book, isn't it? What must I do to get to this spring and drink from it? The answer is nothing. It is a gift. You do not pay for your drinks. He did. It is without payment that you drink from this. Let's change the image. Athletics. To the one who conquers. We haven't won a thing, have we? No, but Christ has and imputed that victory upon you. Those who conquer will have this heritage. And I will, promise language, be his God. And he will be my son. Another image now and another promise. Sonship just amplifying the last. We get to drink from this stream, from this spring, and be written into this book by birthright. Actually, look more closely, not birthright as such, but adoption. You will become his son somehow. We know how. It was the cross where he treated his son as an enemy and treated his enemies as sons. It is a great exchange that takes place on the cross. That is the day of your adoption, an exchange of estate as Christ is crucified for us and we are raised with him and in him. And the images just keep rolling now and coming thick and fast. You can hardly keep up with them. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me a river. Of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Christ and the Father share a throne because they are equally one. And He invites us to drink from something that flows from the throne, it is a river. And unlike the tepid and the murky waters of Laodicea that we looked at last week, and in Revelation chapter 3, this water is clean and it is clear and it is refreshing and good to drink. And verse 2 goes on, on either side of this river that flows from the throne in the vision of Revelation, here there is a tree. It is the tree of life. There it is, at last. That tree That we have not seen since we were expelled from Eden appears again at the end of Scripture. We're back now, aren't we? Back at last to that tree of life, invited now to approach the tree from which we were once cast away. In fact, verse 14 says, We are entitled to the tree. Look closely, we have the right, it says. To the tree of life. That word right, exousia, it means power. It means authority. It means liberty. It means it is ours. We don't just sneak up to the tree and grab a crafty piece of fruit when no one's looking. It is our right. Treat that tree like my kids and the neighbors. Treat my fridge. It Just, just open it. Go for it. Would you close the door, please? You know, I pay the bills. But, you know, it's yours. Help yourself. And at last, God explains to us how it is that we can approach this tree. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. I know robes doesn't sound like trees, doesn't sound like rivers, doesn't sound like springs, doesn't sound like thrones, doesn't sound like adoption certificates, but, you know, bear with me. They like to mix their metaphors. This, And you've seen all these words before in this series anyway. But blessed are those who wash their robes. Remember that church in Sardis that Ben Hughes preached on? They're walking around in in filthy robes, soiled. Do you remember last week in Laodicea, walking around in fancy clothes, boasting about them, but, but Christ says to them, your clothes are much nicer than the ones in Sardis, but they still fade away. They still go threadbare in the end. Christ clothes us here. With something perfect and clean and something lasting that does not fade away. This is an identity level change that is being described to us here with this image of a robe. Clothing in scripture, you'll know if you've been with us in this series, is often uh, an image in scripture of something to do with our identity and to do with our fitness for being in a place and wearing the right clothes for the event. And Revelation chapter 7, we skipped over it in this series, describes a people who have washed their robes clean, who are newly clothed. And how is it that they have cleaned their clothing? Well, Revelation says they did so in the blood of the Lamb. Very weird to us, very normal to them. Under the law, under the sacrificial system, blood was used to cleanse and to atone for sin. It had a cleansing function blood offered properly by the right person in the right place at the right time on your behalf would restore your relationship with God. And we're being told here that that person, place, and time is Christ on the cross when he did it, immersed in his sacrifice. That's what we are. And we are so immersed in the sacrifice of Christ that it is as though the blood of Christ has washed over you and rendered you clean. This sacrifice of Christ is what changes everything. Who is this sacrificial lamb who sits on a throne and cleans our clothes? Verse 13, Jesus speaking, I am, he says, it is me. Well, think back to that sermon on, on Moses. I am, we discovered, is the covenant name of God. It is a name that every time it appears in Scripture is calculated to remind you of the promises of God. And this name belongs to God. It means existence itself. And Jesus dares to use the name of God about himself just as he dares to sit on the throne of God himself. Who is he? He is God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The exact same phrase used of the Father is used now of the Son. That's why his blood works. He's God. That's why his sacrifice is full perfect, and sufficient on the cross. It is the kind of cost that only God could pay. Jesus is God. And yet, Jesus also is human. Verse 16, he says, I am the root and the descendant of David. Think back to that sermon in week, uh, I don't know, four, I think it was, of this series. I am both the one who made David, says Jesus, and who descended from David as well. He created David, but he also descended from David. How is that true? How is he both God and son? Well, remember the promise to Eve. Remember the promise to Abraham. Remember the promise to David, an offspring that would descend from you to crush the serpent's head. Powerful enough. God is the promise maker and the fulfillment of the promise as well, the promise keeper. Jesus says, it's me. I am He. I said I would do it, and now I have done it. Jesus paid it all. So we are left at the end of this series and the end of this book with just two very simple promises and one very simple choice to make. As usual, the promises of God are contingent upon how we respond. How will we respond? Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. But come, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Scripture ends with the promise of grace.